If you would, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. We're going to read through uh, verse 25. Uh, last time we were in this uh, book, we looked at how Paul uh, was praying for uh, the church uh, in Rome. And one of the things we highlighted was this is uh, how personal Paul is, is getting at. Uh, the book of Romans has his reputation of being uh, doctor, heavy in doctrine and theology or, or just heavy in truth. Uh, and so it was almost kind of felt unique or really s- s- should strike us how Paul is being personal with them. He's uh, sharing with them his love and, and concern for them as individuals and as a church uh, and how he's uh, seeking the Lord on their behalf and how much he wants to come uh, and see them and visit them. But we did see a, a little bit of, of theology in the passage we looked at last week, starting in verse 16, where Paul talks about uh, this righteousness of God that's been revealed. And we think, that sounds great, it sounds interesting, but what does it mean? It simply put, it means that God has extended to us uh, a right standing with Him, this righteousness, a right standing that we can be, uh, find acceptance with God through the gospel. It's 16 and 17 of chapter 1, really it's the, the, the main point or the thesis that Paul is going to, to prove in a sense uh, in this letter, this righteousness of God that's been revealed. And so it's, when you hear that word righteousness that's, that's, that's ours because of Christ, think that you have a right standing with God, that you've been made right for example, let's say you're, you're going to college and you get a letter of an acceptance from that school. And that letter says that you are in a right standing with us. There's nothing on your record, at least your academic record, that says you shouldn't be here or you're prohibited from uh, being a part of this uh, university community. That letter says you're accepted. You're in a right standing with us so you can come and partake of all the privileges that we're extending to you. In a sense, spiritually, that's what we have in Christ. This right standing with God because of what Christ has done for us. He says, you are acceptable. You are in a right standing with me. Now, the reason I I highlight that for us is because of what Paul is going to introduce to us starting in verse 18. And in essence, we're going to see why we need this right standing. And we're going to see what else he's revealing uh, to us. So as you're able, let's stand uh, for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. This is God's Word to us. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly, all the ungodlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what was what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal man, human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual immorality 
for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. This is God's Word, and let's pray to Him. Father God, we uh, ask that just the, the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? Now, I, I anticipate after hearing that uh, passage, uh, some of you were not expecting to hear about the wrath of God this morning. Uh, and if you maybe knew that we were going to talk about the wrath of God, you're like, well, maybe I'll call this one in and uh, not come. And I'm assuming, too, that probably not a lot of us would have these verses pinned on our refrigerators or uh, pinned up on our mirrors where we see them uh, all the time. It's not a, a subject that we uh, often like to talk about and to uh, think uh, deeply and richly on. But nevertheless, I do think uh, this passage is profitable for us on, on many levels. And one of the ways I think it's uh, helpful for us to, to think about the wrath of God or, or the anger of God is, is this. Because we know that God is a God of wrath and a God of anger, I think it enables us to see and take His love more seriously. That it puts uh, his, his weight should be received in our lives with much more weight and much more significance because we know that he is a God who stands against certain things. Or maybe think about it like this. What's the opposite of love? It's not hatred, but it's indifference. Say, for example, you, you have a child, and uh, it's report card day, and they come and they, they give you uh, your report card, and uh, you read the report card, and it's, it's miserable. I mean, it's, there's no hedging. It's, it's just a bad card. It's all full of D's and F's. And you don't say anything to your child about it. What's that child going to think? They're going to walk away and think, my parent doesn't care about my grades. It, is, it doesn't matter what I get. It doesn't matter what I do in school. He's not concerned about that at all. He's he or she is indifferent to it. They're going to get uh, told, in a sense, that there's, there's no love for them there. Now, when I think about my childhood, the, the one time I got a bad grade, that one quiz, that one day, uh, you know, I'm grateful that my parents got on to me and said, these, these kind of grades can't stand, and they took privileges away because it communicated what? It communicated, we love you, and we don't like where this is going. We don't like where this is headed. We don't want you to be this kind of, of person. And so we're not going to show you indifference to your grades, but we're going to show you uh, love because we want you to, to, to do well because we know what it's, it's best for you. And so when we think about God's wrath or God's anger, we know that he is a God who cares, that he's concerned about his creation. He's concerned about us as his as his creatures, as his people, the ones that he has, has made. And so he doesn't meet our sin, he doesn't meet evil with indifference, but he meets it with wrath that's born out of his love. And so with that being said, here's what I want to do with this passage and the kind of things I want to pull out from it. First, I want to talk about what is wrath? What is God's wrath a little bit more specifically? And then I want to talk about uh, who is this wrath directed towards? Who is this wrath directed at, so to speak? 
And then finally, what does it look like uh, to live uh, denying God? And the third point will make sense after we hear the second one. What does it look like to live uh, denying God and not uh, suppressing the truth in a sense? So first, let's think about uh, God's uh, wrath. Uh, There is a a connection. The wrath of God is being revealed. It has a connection with what he says in verse 16. The righteousness of God is, is being revealed. And the connection is because God's righteousness is being revealed, his rightness, his judgments, his holiness, his justice, it's only natural that his uh, wrath would be revealed as well. And because he's revealing his wrath, uh, it makes his righteousness uh, in the gospel all that much more uh, powerful uh, in our lives. Remember, he's writing to an, an audience, and he's laying out his theology, in a sense, the theology of the gospel. This is what it teaches, and this is why it's necessary, and this is why it's important. And so you can almost see if Paul's thinking about going to visit them, and he's thinking about his ministry and how he wants to expand it and grow it and give these people a heart for missions and a heart for the lost, it only makes sense that Paul would would talk about this, would talk about God's um, judgment uh, on sin in the gospel of, of righteousness. But having said that, what, what do we learn about this theme of, of wrath? What does it mean uh, for us? First, what do we mean by that? When we say God's wrath is being revealed, we don't think of, don't think of him as this out-of-control father that just flies off the handle because somebody spilled uh, milk on the table or something like that. But think about God's wrath like this. It's God's fair or right anger at sin. God's fair or right anger at sin. One commentator calls it the the judging righteousness of God. In light of who God is, it only makes sense that He would condemn sin, that He would be against it, that He refuses to condone it. He refuses to ignore it. He refuses to be indifferent to it, but He stands against it. And that's often expressed as his wrath. Well, some will say, how can there be a God who is angry like this? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem acceptable to have a God that's, that's angry and, and mean. I mean, that's the God we see in the, in the Old Testament. He's cruel, and there's all these wars and all this violence. When you get to the New Testament, it's a God of love. It's Jesus. He's God of mercy. He, he dies. He's forgiving. He's turning the other Cheek, how is it that we can have this, this God of wrath, God of anger that's just unacceptable? It just doesn't uh, make sense. There's probably basically one place in, in the New Testament, or one standout place in the New Testament where it says that God is love. First John chapter 4. And in that context where the author just um, declares God is a God of love, you have to look at the context and what has he said before that? Before that, he's talked about Jesus He's talked about why Jesus came, and he talked about Jesus being put forth as a propitiation for our sin. And that's a big fancy word that means that God had, or Jesus had to bear the wrath or anger of God in our place. And so you can't have God's love, you can't have a discussion of God's love without a discussion of God's wrath or God, how God stands against uh, evil. But still, some will, will question, if, if you love a person or even a place, doesn't that mean that you have to rule out anger? Doesn't that mean that you have to rule out wrath? Um, 
Of course not. Those two things go together. If you love someone or you love something, and if there's a threat to that object or the thing you love, whether it's a, something material or, or it's somebody more relational, it's a person, if somebody comes along and wants to hurt them, you're going to be upset. You're going to be angry. You're going to get riled up. You're going to say, that cannot stand. There's something wrong if you tell a parent that their child is being seduced by drugs and, the parent, and you hear the parent's response is just indifference. The right response is to get angry, is to be upset because there's a threat to something that you love. And this is God's stance against evil and against sin. He stands against that which causes us damage. It's why we can say that God is a God that is good. He would, can we really say, if he's indifferent to evil and he's indifferent to sin, can we really say that he's a good God? Can we really say that he's a loving God? I don't think we can do that. Something else that maybe uh, thinking about the, the wrath of God is this. How is God's wrath being revealed? Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed. Well, how is that being revealed to us? Two ways, I think, at least for us to think about this morning. The first way is our conscience. The fact that all of us have a sense of right and wrong. We all have a sense of right and wrong. That, that, that bad things and bad people and bad deeds need to be punished. I wasn't there. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident, nobody after World War II, after hearing about all the people that were killed uh, in all these uh, concentration camps, nobody was saying about the Nazis, you know, it's okay, it is what it is, it happened there, let's just move on. It, there was, people wanted justice. It, nobody was saying after 9-11, you know, it happened and we'll pray for the victims but it's time just to, to move on. No, as a country, we cried out for what? We wanted justice. We wanted evil to be held accountable. All of us, can, many of us can, re, I bet, remember the day when we heard that Osama bin Laden was killed. And that's significant for us because we, it was a sense of justice was served. All of us have this innate uh, desire for evil to be punished. And that's how one of the ways I think God's wrath is being revealed to us. The other way I think we understand God's wrath is being revealed to us is in the cross. Anything about Jesus on the night when he was being arrested, he's in the garden, he's praying, and it's intense prayer. It's heartfelt prayer. It's, God, this is going to be really difficult, and if I don't have to do this, I don't really want to, but nevertheless, I'm going to do your will. And he submits to the will of the Father. And in one gospel, you see the, the soldiers coming forward to arrest him, and Peter, being the, the, the faithful uh, disciple, pulls out a sword and he swipes off somebody's ear. And Jesus, in effect, turns to him and says, what are you doing? And he says something specifically. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? What's that cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of God's judgment. We under, one of the ways we understand or we see that God's wrath is being revealed is when we look at the cross, that Jesus bore the anger of God. He bore the, the wrath of God. He bore the punishment of God. It's just that He did it in our place of His people and of His elect. Now, the next thing I want to look at in this passage is, is who is, is God's wrath directed towards or is it directed at? Basically, it's directed at the person who should know better. Because think about what it says starting in verse 18. 
or in the middle of, or the end of 18, uh, who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what has been, no, been what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about God's wrath is, is directed at those who suppress the truth. Those who are trying to get rid of God. Those who are, are thinking about their lives and their, uh, how they understand life and answering the big questions of life. And they are factoring God out of the equation. They don't... Uh, he doesn't come into their calculations of, of what life is about and where they came from and what the problems are. And he goes on to say that the, the type of knowledge they should have, Paul says, uh, an understanding of God's eternal power and divine nature. In essence, the things about God, specific things about Him, have been revealed in creation, in nature, in the world around us. It's woven into the fabric of our being, this understanding that God is there, that He exists, that He is real. The Puritan Stephen uh, Sharnock uh, has this long work uh, about this idea of how God is, is revealed in, in creation. And he says uh, some of the things we can recognize about God from, or deduce from God, about God from creation. He says the power of God can be recognized in God creating the world out of nothing. The wisdom of God in the order, variety, and beauty of creation. The goodness of God in the provision He makes for His creatures. The eternity of God because He must have existed before what He made. The omniscience of God because as the Creator, He must have a perfect knowledge of everything He has made. And then finally, the sufficiency of God because He gave all creatures a beginning and that makes their, be, that their being not necessary, which God does not need them. He is not dependent on them in any way. He can live happily without Him, His sufficiency. He doesn't need us, but nevertheless, He does uh, make us. And what Paul is, is saying, look at the world. You can observe the world. You don't have to be a Ph.D. scholar. You don't have to, to read all these long books. But there's simple things that you can deduce from the world that we live in. There's simple um, qualities. There's a recognition that, that God is real, or A, God is there, and He's created me. I'm not alone. That there's something else, or something more to what I'm experiencing now. Theologians typically call this God's general revelation. And the reason that's significant is because it's different from God's special revelation. Understanding of, of recognizing God in creation is, is not going to save. It's not going to get your sins forgiven. It takes hearing the gospel. It takes God's special revelation, if you will. God showing forth, this is what I've done for you in light of who you are, in light of who I am. Now, some may be asking, why is it such a big deal that people are not acknowledging God? Why is God so, uh, why does he take that so seriously? That people are not recognizing him for who he is. Uh, look at verse 21. Paul says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. What's he saying? That people are not thanking him 
People are not recognizing God for who He is. And, and this is more than just a, a kid that refuses to say thank you uh, for some kind of kindness that they have received. It's much more deeper than that. And the reason that, that God is so, this is such a big deal is because it gets at the issue of self-sufficiency. It gets at the issue of self-sufficiency. When we don't give thanks, we're expressing our own self-sufficiency. We're saying we don't need Him, that He's not uh, a part of my life. Think about it uh, like this. This made sense when I heard it explained like this. It's the metaphor of of plagiarism. Y'all know what plagiarism is? It's when somebody um, takes credit for somebody else's work. Uh, they, they use it and they ascribe it to themselves. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't write it. Uh, they didn't think about it. They didn't um, create it on their own. They took it from somebody else and they're claiming it uh, as their own, claiming it for themselves. They're taking credit for those things. Now, somebody who commits plagiarism, what are they doing? They're refusing to give thanks. They're refusing to give credit. They're refusing to, to give honor to the person that really did put this work together, that really did uh, create this, and they're keeping it for themselves. And what they're doing is they're claiming what? Self-sufficiency, uh, that I have done it uh, myself. I'm dependent upon nobody else. I don't need anybody else. And so this is what God is so trying to, to get at, is when we don't give thanks, when we don't recognize Him, when we suppress the truth, uh, we're, we're saying we're self-sufficient. We don't need Him. And there's something else that, that, that goes a little bit deeper when we do this. The reason that God is so um, frustrated or why this is such a big deal is because it's an issue of control. Is it not? It's an issue of control at the end of the day. If I recognize that God is God, and I recognize that He has done this and He's done that, and there's a, there's a higher authority, there's something bigger in the world than myself then that means I'm accountable to Him. That means He has authority in my life. That means I have to surrender control. And that's why you see the Apostle Paul talking about the exchange and suppressing the truth and exchanging the the worship of God, the recognition of God as, as God in my life and as an authority, moving from that so as to be your own entity. Now you can say... Uh, that you uh, believe in a God of love, but you're still expressing self-sufficiency. Because I believe in a God of love, and He's forgiving, He's gracious, and He's kind. It means I can do whatever I want. I don't have to submit to Him. There's no self-sufficiency. Or you can say, I believe in a God of truth. And uh, he's, if I want to know Him and be accepted by Him, I have to do this, 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 and that. There's still self-sufficiency. You're still controlling it because you, have, you do these things and, God, and you'll be with Him. But when you believe the God of the Bible, it's something different. Because the God of the Bible is presented to us as a God who is just and holy. That He stands against our sin. And that He gives us and extends to us the gospel. And to receive that gospel, you've got to humble yourself. You've got to submit to Him. You've got to know Him by faith. You've got to surrender control, in essence, to Him. Now, the last thing I want to look at, and this is a much shorter point, is uh, what does this passage say to us about living like God is not there? Remember we talked about suppressing the truth and exchanging. What does it look like to live as though God is not uh, there? 
And basically the answer is to that, what it looks like is developing counterfeit gods. Being a people who create counterfeit gods or idols. Look at verse 25. It says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served, the created, served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. I love that last phrase, who is forever praised. Paul just slipping in that, that worship as he declares the truth. That you can't, even if, if you deny God, you're still a person of worship. No matter who you are and what you believe, we are people who worship. There will be something that you worship. And Paul is saying either you can worship the Creator God who created you, or you can re- worship something in creation. It is instilled in us to worship something. That worship may not take us to a, a, a meeting in a room like this, but there is something in your life that you are going to look to to make you happy. Something in your life that you're going to look to to give you significance. Something in your life that you're going to look to that says, this is my identity. Something in your life that you're going to look to for security or for rest or for peace or for comfort. And whatever that is, it's called an idol. Think of, answer this question in your minds. If I have blank, then I'll have joy. If I achieve blank, then I'll have security. Then I'll have rest. Or then I'll know I'm, I'm a person of significance. Or then I'll know that I value, I'm valued. The answer to that question is that which you worship. That which is an idol for you. And Paul is saying to us, you can either, you're going to be a person who worships. Are you going to worship the Creator God, or are you going to worship something in creation? Now, this is why that's important to, to see, I think, and to recognize. Sometime back, my wife and I started watching this show called Friday Night Lights. It's been off the air for a long, long time. But it's about this high school football team in Dillon, Texas. And everything revolves around that high school football team. And everything in that town is about them winning state championships. If they win, everything is great. Everybody's happy. If they lose, everybody's miserable and they're looking for somebody to fire. Okay? It, football is their idol. It's, it's what drives them. It's what controls them. It's what says to them, you can be happy or you can be sad based upon what happens to them. I'm all for winning football games, but this is an example of, of an idol in our lives. Idols are something that control us. Uh, they're not innocent. Uh, they're not um, harmless, but they will dictate and they will drive you. They will be your master's. Because you'll look to them to make you happy. You'll look to those idols to give you rest and to give you security. Now, I bet if I was to ask you, you know, name some of the idols that we have in our culture, somebody's going to say money. And yes, money is an idol. It can be an idol. But money, and some of the idols we have, points to something deeper. Imagine somebody who has a lot of money. Uh, And this person who collects a lot of money, you may look at them and say, money is their idol, wealth is their idol, material stuff is their idol. But you notice something about them is they never spend their money. They drive this old beat-up car. Uh, They still, they live in a house that just doesn't match what they have in their bank account. And you begin to ask, why is that? Well, yes, money is their idol, but you know what really is their idol? Security. 
The more money I have in the bank, the more secure I feel. That the more wealth I have, the more freedom I have, and the more comfort I'm going to have. That the more ways I can deal with anything that's a threat to me. My point is, idols show us something about our hearts, show us something about our lives, show us something about who we really are and where we're looking for peace and security. And Paul is, is warning us in a sense. He's asking us, who are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the God of creation or are you worshiping something in creation? And that question is an invitation for you to examine your hearts, examine your lives, to think about, well, why am I so angry? Well, maybe it's because there's an idol in your life and it's not, it's not, not there and you're frustrated by that. What is it that you're serving what is it that you're loving? And at this point, remember what Paul has already said to us, starting in verse 16. The righteousness of God has been revealed. Paul is not ashamed of this gospel. For it means to, to us, God saying to us, I love you and I accept you. I know you have a problem with idol worship and going after things you shouldn't, but I've given you my son, and he's died in your place, and he's borne my wrath. And it means I love you and I accept you. And I want you to come and know the richness and the beauty of worshiping me as your creator, God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are a people who are easily distracted. who easily go after um, the things that look uh, so good and so appealing but they, they leave us empty and they leave us wanting. As we think about the question of worship, we pray that you would renew us with a, a fresh vision of all that you are, the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel, the truth of your life given for us. May that be beautiful to us. May it give us hearts to sing with great joy and great peace in all that you are. And we ask this, in Jesus' name, amen.